flexing herds here. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour on 2SER, and it is our second week discussing the rules of backyard cricket. Not by the International Cricket Association or whatever it is they're called these days, don't really keep track of that, but by Jock Sarong, whose main character has been stuck in the boot of a car through the entire course of this novel, as Herds has been trying to figure out what in hell is going on with this boy. We are discussing chapters 9 to 14, Squibbly to Resurrection. Herds, what's going on? I feel bad for Darren. That's what's going on. <laughs> I feel really awful for him because he seems to just end up in one scrape after another. You know, being <laughs> stuck in a boot for the entire recollection of your, you know, your life story isn't particularly pleasant mm-hmm. either. It makes me wonder exactly how long he's stuck in there in the sort of broad scheme of things. Uh, but yeah, no, things have gone from bad to worse. We, we've almost caught up, it seems, with the boot the boot storyline. Uh-huh. Darren, in the last chapter, has taken some really awful drugs that incuse, it, it had like, what was it? What was, it was like- uh, Well, it's it's called Rhapsody. That's its like street name. That doesn't matter though. What's actually in it though? It has like, you thought, yeah. It is, uh, it is pentobarbital. And vets call it euthasol. Yeah, it's it's a lot of really terrible stuff uh, that you should not be taking at a party. And Craigo thinks it's a great old time, apparently, which is concerning to me. I mean, um, poor Darren, as you say, has been through the absolute ringer. And the kind of frustrating part about it is that the novel makes you feel very sympathetic for this guy, but at the yeah. same time... He's really in a grave he's dug himself. Yeah, yeah. He, he absolutely brings it all on himself. Like, he he gets involved, as was foreshadowed, as we discussed last week, he gets involved with his match fixing, mm-hmm. which is sort of what the, what the novel seems to be angling towards. And Darren's defining moments, uh, just as the, the lawnmower incident was the defining moment of his childhood, his, his adult life now, is that he's asked not to throw a game, but just to miss a, a single ball. Uh, and he just can't do it. He just accidentally, on a string of luck and chance, manages to whack this ball out of the park in a moment where he was supposed to to fail. And it seems like in this moment that the entire stadium, you know, the entire uh, of, of both teams, uh, the coaches, the players, everyone is down stricken. Like this is this is something big that Darren's put his foot into. Yeah, it's really interesting because obviously, as we say, he's dug his own grave, but at the same time, there's this weird line of him still trying to do the right thing, either through incompetence or goodwill. I think particularly when he like looks at getting, uh, once he's left the actual play side and is starting to get into commentary. And then he screws it up again anyway. He ends up doing another stupid bet for 60 grand and he takes it, which, you know, is obviously something that's been fixed by Craigo and his like group of match fixes that he's working with. Like he's, he's like, I should be commentating on this. I should be talking about who won or lost, but I don't care because I'm the 60 grand man. And he's like, he's over the moon. Uh-huh. Um, and then he goes off and, uh, and that's what he does. Rhapsody. And then he doesn't even take the 60 grand. Cause he like realizes I've screwed up again. I think that's the thing. He's, he doesn't have any foresight. 
Um, that's kind of the characterization of his, it's like his fatal flaw. It's kind of interesting the way that they juxtapose uh, Darren and Wally's mother with the media and Darren. Of course. Because we get these really interesting scenes where particularly once there's been the incident with the drug where some girls on life support and passed away and they're in court. Oh yeah. There was Mom this great scene like- right before that where their mother is effectively trying to- Excuse it, yeah. Yeah, she's trying to excuse it and she's clearly really struggling with it and then- and she kind of resolves herself, at least puts up a strong face for it. But then at the end of the scene, when Darren is told that he abandoned the girl, which is the the way that it is read out to him in court, yeah. he's like, oh, through all of the things that have been said, like I'd not considered that. Yeah, because that's kind of the problem is that uh, Darren has never truly grown up. I think it's really well uh, symbolized in this moment where he's like, he's like, 40 or something he's, he's an old man and he's just taken this this drug that he doesn't know what it is in a bar where he doesn't know anybody with a couple of 19 year old girls like he's completely lost control mm. um, not that he ever had control to begin with but like obviously this entire story is about Darren's story just going from bad to worse mm-hmm. and Wally seems to be going up and up and up at least until you know his child is kidnapped which is a whole which, other thing yeah, there's oh so much God. going on in this story <laughs> It's it's insane. I, I don't want to say it's abrupt because I feel like it was nicely <laughs> led up bit. to contextually. Yeah. But at the same time, it just is so surprising that suddenly the major drama in the story is a both both a child of theirs, but also a missing child of theirs. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, Hannah's had a bit of a focus where Darren's been trying to be a good uncle and failing <laughs> incredibly. Trying. Uh but once she disappears, it's just the going back to what I was saying the last week about how well the tone is navigated in this book. The the narration feels lost sure. when it's discussing Hannah. Yeah. And it feels yeah. so intentional and well put together. Yeah, well, it's a side effect of this first person narration, right? He's not good at understanding the consequence of his actions, and he sure as heck does not understand the broader context of the world. He's very, very tunnel visioned. Reminds me of a certain other character we've covered recently by the name of William Power. I don't know what you're talking about. Are you telling me that those authors might have been an influence on each other? Is that a thing? Is that. Is that <laughs> I, that's I, crazy. Listen. I'm not saying that this show explores the influences and inspirations mm. of various authors around the world of mystery and crime fiction, yeah, but yeah, yeah. It, that may be the case. That Hertz. may be the case. We'll have to do some research on that. <laughs> um, but no, no, I, I am enjoying that a lot. I am enjoying seeing the, the parallels between the protagonists here um, and also in the, the way that they treat women, which is a whole other conversation. Darren is characterized by basically every female character in the room, he's like ogling them, which again is a very strong, uh, like a very interesting parallel to William Power um, and the way that he uh, sees women. It's sort of it's it's not that he's a despicable human being; it's just that he has like a like a very strong lust, um, and I wonder if it's supposed to be tied to like his mother and the way that he like grew up and like not having emotional attachments, that sort of thing. Like, I wonder how that's going to pan out. Mm. But it's just interesting to see the parallels between Wally, who, like, has this almost accidental, uh, very, very strong relationship with with Louise and Hannah, whereas Darren just has fling after fling after fling coming to a head in, in the Rhapsody chapter. Yeah. Seeing everything from Darren's perspective and his lack of control and, and uh, you know, as you say, always, like, eyeing off the people around him, I do really like contextually then the moment where he tackles some guy who's trying to rile him up at a press event mm, oh, by yeah. just mentioning Hannah's name. Oh my goodness, what a weird moment. That's, oh, because here's the, this is part of 
you know, the solution, I think, this this character, this poor press character, who in my mind knows exactly what's going on. It's just that Darren won't listen to him because the way it's, he narrates this moment, he's like, yeah. there's this guy rattling off a conspiracy theory that I just don't want to pay attention to. And then he mentions Hannah's name and he just goes berserk on him. But like, look, in, in, a, in a TV show where we have side plots, like this the reporter guy is like the one guy who knows exactly what's going on. I, I think the thing that I really love about that scene in particular, though, is that it is kind of the peak of Darren feeling out of control about the Hannah incident. Sure. You can almost feel the narration building up towards the moment where he explodes and charges the guy. It's yeah. so well paced out. And I like it kind of as a checkpoint in the book for like, this is the uh, first narrative climax of the disappearance of Hannah. Mm. Yeah. And we still don't even have answers at this point in the book, Herb, no. so that is one of the uh, bonus points on the table what? I mentioned is that to you. Another, is that another bonus point? How many bonus points are there in this episode? There, there are- there, No, 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 Herb. So let, let me be clear. There are only two points on the table, okay. but I said if you messed up last week, okay. there was going to be a point to catch up. Okay, So sure. if you messed up in week one, d- discerning the situation around Hannah- That's so vague, Flex. You're just throwing me under the bus. All right. Let's- well, that's why I've given you two opportunities <laughs> to get this point, Herds, because we don't really have a conventional mystery. I can't come in here and say, Herds, tell me the who, the how, and the why of this person being murdered. I know. I'm just so I gotta, saying- i got to run you're- circles around the mystery in the middle of this book you're to give you points. You're giving me more trouble than I've ever given you, and it's just awful. Well, listen, Herds, you've been progressively <laughs> undermining my ability to solve things more and more, so i got to fight back. It's true. I did literally last week say, is it A or B, when it was clearly A, and you, you mm-hmm. flipped your answer around, which is fantastic. Um, that was a, a brilliant moment of shout for it for me. It, I, can, I can imagine it was, <laughs> but we'll, we'll come back and talk about the mystery at the end of sure, today's sure. episode. We are discussing chapters 9 to 14, Squibbly to Resurrection Squibbly. in Jock Sarong's The Rules of Backyard Cricket. We are Flex and Herds, and you're listening to Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. I'm joined on the line by the author of The Rules of Backyard Cricket himself, Jock Sarong. Jock, we are currently dead in the middle of this book. I've read the whole thing, but my co-host, Herds, who isn't with us today, is currently trying to battle it out to figure out exactly what's going on, and I am having a blast reading through this book, so it is so good that you could join us. <laughs> oh, it's good to be here. Is this going to cause any troubles with the ending? Oh, don't do worry. There? Don't worry. <laughs> this, is a, this is a safe environment. Because uh, we are doing this ahead of time, I can jump into the old Google box and tweak a few things if spoilers do crop out. As long as Herds is all right. Now- One of the things that uh, has fascinated me so much about your book reading through it and also looking into the reception of this book is that it has been just astoundingly well received and reading through. I mean, you can see why. But what is it you think is connected so much with audiences with this book? You know, I've, I've heard word that it is the greatest Australian crime novel of the past 20 years. You know, what is it you think that uh, this book connects with people and gives it that uh, that repertoire, that title? Well, I, I think the first um, response to that probably is that as an author, you're constantly looking forwards and worrying about what you're trying to do and you don't often look back. So I, I really wasn't aware that the book had that level of reception, but it's lovely to hear. I, I think what I, when I listen to people talk about the book, what I ascribe it to is that it's a bit of a chameleon. I think um, when I used to go, you know, to writers' festivals and talk about it, 
people would come up to me and say, oh, is this a cricket book? And I'd say, yeah, absolutely, it's a cricket book. And then other people would say, look, God, I hate cricket. Um, and I'd say, that's all right. It's a book about brothers. And there's the ability to see the story in a number of different ways um, so that it's constantly wrong-footing you as a reader, that it's not quite what you think it's going to be. I think there's, there's something really interesting for me as well about the idea of, you know, having someone describe your book as the, the greatest of anything, you know, as an author, <laughs> as a creative, d- does it give you a bit of a big ego or do you sometimes find yourself wondering like, you know, I'm just, I'm just writing, you know, my books. I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. I, I think it's the latter. Um, obviously there's a real pleasure that comes with people understanding and enjoying what you were trying to do in a book. You know, that just feels really good. I don't know if it's an ego thing, but um, <laughs> it, it's just a that's lovely more, that's pleasure. That's more a comment on my reputation than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a pleasure when you do connect with people and particularly with this book because it's a book that works partially through nostalgia. You know, I was talking about backyards and the way things were in the 80s and the 90s and um, people of a certain age immediately connect to that and talk about things that they remember and the rituals that they had in their families. So um, that's where a lot of the joy has been, in sharing that stuff with readers. I think also one fascinating thing, you mentioned the nostalgia in there. The book spends a lot of time establishing the characters and giving the impression of their lives flashing before their eyes all the way back to their youth. And one thing that really impressed me about it is that if I just flick to a random page in the book, I can nearly immediately tell what stage of their life we're in because of how strong the voice is. Do characters that expressive and that clearly defined draw inspiration from anything in your own life or is it just something that came to life on the page? Um, well, I'm one of four brothers and we did play an enormous amount of backyard cricket and a lot of the early ideas for the book were based around things that I remembered and and not only, you know, the, the practical stuff like how did we how did we set the boundaries in the backyard and how did we actually play it, but um, the much deeper stuff about conflicts that you have with your siblings and the weird ones that can get very, very, um, <laughs> in our case, violent, um, and yet they they don't matter at all as life goes on, and the other ones that somehow leave a scar emotionally and it's not as easy as you first think to draw the differences between them. Um, yeah, so I, I think I drew upon a lot of that stuff early and then merging it with um, what is perhaps a more conventional crime tale and a book about celebrity and sport, they were later processes. But the early impressions for me as a writer were very much the, the family stuff. Now, you do mention in there that there were, you know, a couple of grim moments that resulted from your own experiences playing cricket. I hope that none of your brothers have ended up with their kneecap shot out in the back of a car at any point, Jock. <laughs> um, no, in fact, um, they're a pretty stable lot, my brothers. Um, it was interesting. I had cause to reflect the other day when Dean Jones passed away that I had interviewed him um, in the research for this book. And uh, I think you know, I idolised him as a kid and I had a particular idea of the sort of person he would be. And when we sat down and chatted, he turned out to be so different to what I expected and indeed really, really generous. He gave me a lot of his time and he, he told all these scandalous stories, you know, and I was sitting there never having met the man before thinking, are you sure you want to tell me these things? <laughs> um, but he was fantastic, you know, and I really felt um, the sadness of that when I heard that he died the other day. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, you know, speaking of those scandalous stories, I guess for a lot of cricket fans, you kind of just see the front end of the sport. You see the spectacle, you see the joy, you see the tournament and the competition. When we look at something that in so many ways is so depressing in the way that you've portrayed cricket in this book, you know, how is it that you can go about writing such a miserable story about something as beloved as the pastime of cricket? You know, Is there a disconnect <laughs> there or is it just accepting the realities of it? Yeah, well, I think the first point to make is that I used cricket because I had played a lot of cricket and I kind of understood it as a sport and a culture. But I think you could apply much the same parable to lots of different professional sports. We There's a thing in there called which I call the Pope Lecture, which is this bit about um, how willing we are to suspend disbelief where professional sport is concerned because we want it to be the fairy tale. And at the moment, you know, you look at the ridiculous and dreadful things that are going on around us. And I turned on the footy the other night and for an hour and a half, everything was okay because I was watching footy. I, I think we have a very deep need for sport to take us away from the, the, the grubby business of living. And that means that we are determined to be unsceptical about it. Um, to our own detriment, it means you can hide all sorts of awful stuff in there. And then... Let's turn to your new book, The Burning Island, which covers an elderly man and his daughter setting off to meet a potentially bloody fate. It's clearly another story that is so deeply about family ties. And also, if any of our listeners want to hear more about the book, they can also check out our friend Andrew Purple's discussion with you on the book in full. But what is it about family ties that makes it so engaging to write? You know, obviously, it's an experience that nearly all of us have you know how do you translate that and you know your experiences with just your family into so many stories with so much variety yeah well i'm glad that you um put the burning island that way around it's very common to start with the idea that it's a historical novel but i think it really is a novel about family and to a greater or lesser degree all of us go through our lives trying to figure out our families. And there's a rich vein of fiction writing to be had in that. Um, the Burning Island is it is set in real history and there are plenty of real historical characters and events in it. But um, the, the deeper thing that was going on for me was this exploration of the relationship between a father and a daughter. And um, I'm a father of daughters now. You know, it's funny, I was just banging on about having four, having three brothers as I grew up and, and Burning Island um, is a father of a daughter, which is, um, which is me. But as, as your daughters grow up, I, as a dad, I suppose you are less able to hide behind a facade about who you are and you have to become honest about your failings. And um, that's a lot of what's going on in the Burning Island Um the father in this instance is an addict and the daughter has given a lot of her life to trying to support him. And that's a struggle that plenty of people go mm. through. And I think one uh, one other really interesting thing is that you and a stretch of the authors that we've covered, because this is here on 2SER, your murder mystery world tour, as we kind of trace connections between authors from all around the world. In amongst those we've covered this year, Solari Gentil, Robert Gott, and yourself have all done these very historically focused novels where you've thrust your characters directly into history. In terms of a writing tool, what is it you think that allows you to insert such personal narratives, such as these family dramas, into history? And what is so engaging about having that framing device to use? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think um, I always consider it in terms of 
a choice. Either you say about history that these are people exactly like us just wearing funny clothes or you say um, these people are inherently different to us. And um, I kind of prefer the former model. I think that there are universals about the way that people bounce off each other and they were the same in 1830 as they are now. It's just that all of the practicalities around the relationships are different. In theory, you can talk about things like fathers and daughters and um, about grief in ways that are timeless and universal. And then you kind of layer on the historical stuff. You know, you do your research and you go away and read about voyages and ships and islands and all of these things and you layer those on. But the, the core of the storytelling is stuff that is completely contemporary. It's the stuff that's around us every day. Well, Jock, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. We have been loving The Rules of Backyard Cricket so much, and I cannot wait to get into my copy of The Burning Island. Oh, I'm really glad, Felix. Thanks heaps, mate. We are discussing The Rules of Backyard Cricket by Jock Sarong right there himself, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. This is your murder mystery world tour on 2SER, Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds discussing Jock Sarong's The Rules of Backyard Cricket, chapters 9 to 14, Squibbly to Resurrection. Herds is in the solver's chair. It uh, is his last opportunity to figure out what is going on in this damn book. What is going before on? Before we get to the end next week. And Herds, you were complaining just before we went away there in the first section of the show today that I had given you, I'd given you a bit of a mess. I'd given you, you a bit of a uh, hazy mystery with hazy opportunities yep. for points. Well, everything's hazy. And, the uh, blood I was haze. explaining myself, but ultimately, Herds, it boils down to this: Why is Darren in the back of that car? Who kidnapped Hannah? And who has shoved Darren in the back of that car? And what? <laughs> is it the same reason? It boils down to these four things. Great. Thanks, Flex. You're really making my job easy here. I mean, listen, Hertz, it's the who, the how, the why, and a bonus that's point. Not, what do you want not, from me? It's no, the standard that's set. That's definitely not true. This is definitely convoluted as heck, and I'm not looking forward to the ending here. I feel like oh, this is just going to be off the chain, Flex. This entire <laughs> story is blowing my mind. As it should I'm be. I'm going to throw forward some things that I think are true, and I'm going to try and- you know, answer your questions more directly later because I don't know that I can. Uh, I I mentioned last week that I was kind of going back and forth between Craig and Wally because those are the only two significant characters apart from mum. I think that both of these characters are involved to some extent and they're trying to figure out exactly what they're responsible for is the, is the kind of tricky part here because there was one moment in the story here that really stuck out to me um, that I've, that I've been thinking about over the last day or so. And that's when Darren finds his old mum's like logbook or record book, or whatever, from all the matches they've been playing. And mm-hmm. he notes that none of the numbers make any sense. What's mentioned is that the number three is repeated like ad nauseum. I'm going to pose because this is a story about two brothers and the way that they present themselves to the world. And we've, we've explicitly had like Jackal and Hyde brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's supposed to indicate that it's about, you know, Wally is the good brother and Darren is the bad brother. But the more that we see of Darren, we empathize with him despite him like doing bad things. I think that both of them have a Jackal and a Hyde side. I think that's what we're leading to. And I think that the logbook, because now that we've had the match fixing like properly brought into the story, I think that the logbook 
isn't actually mum's. I think it's Wally's recordings of the matches and that he's recording uh, not cricket like points in the game, but like how many times the bowler fast bowls and how many times the bat doesn't connect by this specific person so that he can make these like really obscure match fixings uh, actually happen. I think that the that book there is the smoking gun that we've got. So in the strictest sense, I think that Wally is going to turn out to be the ultimate criminal of this tale. The only problem that I have is that Hannah's disappearance doesn't make a ton of sense, but I don't know that we've actually had that many scenes where we see Wally, like, being a good dad. He's mostly traveling around and, like, not being super good at, at, at like, being a father figure, which I think is going to end up, like, stemming from the fact that he never had a good father figure. I feel like that's a that's a connection there. Wait, so are you, are you suggesting more broadly that Wally has arranged the kidnapping of his own kid and this is kind of to escape from having to even be a father figure? Uh, I don't know about being a father figure. I think it, it's more to do with the public perception of himself and because we don't see a lot of his life. And I know that he, Wally is obsessed with like keeping up appearances. So I'm wondering if he's orchestrated for somebody like somebody else um, to kidnap his child, to like make it, make him seem sympathetic to the public because this is around the point where the media is like really cracking down on Darren, which reflects badly on Wally. I don't know. I'm I'm struggling to really make that leap, but that's where my head's at. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's 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 where my head is because if if Wally is the person who's behind like the kidnapping of his daughter and then is like responsible for Darren being kidnapped, like that makes some sense if he's like behind both of those things. I, I'm not 100% sold on that side of the story. I'll be honest. I'm not 100% certain if I can iron out what is going on with Hannah. That's that's the that's the answer I'm going to lock in for now. I think that the match that Darren screwed up with the three thousand mm-hmm. dollars, because if he's being paid three three thousand dollars to miss a hit, imagine how much money is going to be involved if like the entirety of the pitch and both teams is in on this. Like, there's a huge amount of money yeah. that you're dealing with there with that many parties who need a payout to make that three thousand dollars be worth it. And I think that Wally was like involved in that, and he's he's kind of dealing with Darren's screw up on his like side of the table, and that's why uh, again we we see he's so eager to like set Darren up with this like uh, this this guy who's this like PR guy who's gonna fix everything for him. I think that Wally has been using this guy for a while. Maybe this PR guy said like. You know, if a tragedy were to happen to your family, then nobody would really care about these match fixings anymore. They wouldn't look into it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of where my head's at. I, I I'm I'm following herds. Uh, I I think I think you 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 get you're getting along some interesting tracks here, herds. Yeah, but I think the thing I wanted to talk about today before we close out today's show is what we said last week about this being not a conventionally fair play murder mystery. Obviously, mm. when we look at the broader field of crime fiction. This is clearly much more the modern style of mystery novel, of crime novel, where it's not about one murder that happens and we spend the entire time solving puzzles. It's about an event that is a framing device for a bunch of other questions that more often than not lead to some sort of twist. And you are suggesting that the twist is going to be that the brother was the bad guy all along. And... I wanted to get your thoughts, Herds, on whether you think we could still call this a murder mystery. The The question is, is that when 
we are defining genres, not to try and sit here and gatekeep because I think that that's a futile exercise, but more so for the sake of clarity. Like if we were to try and pitch this novel, if we were to try and put this novel on this show, does it fit the brief of the show? Do you think it has so far for you? I like. I don't know. I feel like, in the strictest sense, this is this is not really a murder mystery, right? Mm-hmm. We, as I've said, like we don't have, we're missing so many of the conventions of a murder mystery story, and there hasn't actually been a murder. But I do think there is value to it being part of the part of the discussion, because as we've said, there is only as much value to a rule, um, and we usually use the Knox of Van Dyne rules in this uh, as as understanding how to break it, and I think that. If you can form a story that is is inherently about crime and mystery and figuring out who the the culprit is, so to speak, I do think that there is value uh, in discussing in the in the broader context here. And I want to say, if there is a murder, I actually think it is more likely that uh, Darren kills Wally than anything else. It would be strange to have Darren killed at the end of this. I feel like having him like live with his sins and like trying to carry that weight, especially if his, he's the one who like kills his brother, having to carry the weight of two brothers, I think would be a really compelling ending. Yeah, I, I think it'll be really exciting. And I, I hope ultimately, like even if we don't end up covering another story like this on the show that doesn't have a uh, standard detective fiction structure is super, super important and super relevant because this is just where crime fiction is these days. And I think that the the way that this story is still so compelling while still having this engaging uh, mystery question is is a really great sign of how things have been able to innovate uh, in a more broader space than the restrictive nature of Knox and Van Dyne. Yeah, we have the mystery of the boot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, we are discussing Jock Sarong's The Rules of Backyard Cricket. Next week on the show, we will be discussing to the end of the story that is Decline to the Forest. I'm super excited to get there, Herds. This is an absolute blast of a book, and I'm, I'm hoping you enjoy it, no matter what traumatic experiences realizing your points may or may not land. Uh, oh, brings you. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. We will see how we go next week. You'll listen to Death of the Reader. Mm-hmm.